Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 4th, 2012. This is episode 914 of the Survival Podcast. 914 folks, 86 episodes away. 86 episodes away from episode 1000. Need you to call in. Need you to call in, not the think line, but the line for uh, episode 1000 and Revolution 2.0. 866-691-5353. Again, 866-691-5353. Please call that number and just leave a message of about two minutes saying what... What you've changed in your life and how your life is better because you're practicing preparedness, because you're involved with the Survival Podcast or a forum or whatever. If you want to get a feel for what a show like this is like, I'll put two links in today's show notes. The one-year anniversary show, I think it was episode 550. I'll put those in the show notes for you guys so that you can maybe just give a little bit of a listen to one of those past shows. And I'll tell you what, if you ever need to feel like, am I doing the right thing? Is this really going to benefit me long-term? Pull up one of those shows and listen. I mean, this, the, the second episode 550 is like 90 minutes long, and people were leaving messages anywhere from 45 seconds to two minutes. That's a lot of people. You are not alone. Episode 1000, I wanted to go over like two hours. There's nowhere near that much uh, material for it yet. Please call in and uh, leave your message and be part of episode 1000. And concurrently with episode 1000 is going to be the re-release of our theme song, the Revolution is You with Revol the Re Revolution Video 2.0. So I need your pictures of what you're actively doing to build independence and liberty in your life. Send those pictures to Jack at the Survival Podcast.com with Revolution 2.0 in the subject line. That'll get them filtered straight into a box. It's just for that. All right, before we get started on today's show, which it's Monday, so it's a feedback show, there's sort of an economic theme, and then there's some other stuff in today's show, uh, just how the stuff that came in worked out this week, and maybe it'll help with, you know, kind of the somber note I left you with on Thursday last week. Uh, maybe it'll make it a little more somber. I actually want to tell you I'm sorry for Thursday's show last week. I was not on my game. Um, I hope it was a decent show. It wasn't a great show. I know it wasn't a great show. I try to make every show a great show. When I don't come through, I feel bad. Not because, you know, not every, you know, everybody's entitled to have a bad day or whatever. My concern when I have a show that's not that great is I really don't want it to be the first show that somebody ever listens to. I really hope that, that, uh, if we had anybody listen to that show and it was your first show, you hung in there for Friday and, and you're here Monday and you're going to see that, that that is not the usual Jack. I don't know what was up, but sometimes people just are a little bit off on their game. Even Michael Jordan, one of the greatest athletes of all time, had games he wasn't proud of. Thursday shows one that I showed up, but I'm not proud of it. I'll try to do a better job for you today. Before we get into today's show, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. That's right, the Berkey Guy. So what do you think you're going to get from him? Well, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems and some other cool stuff for your prepping needs. Uh, check him out today at Directive21.com. But why Jeff? I mean, you can get a Berkey water filtration system anywhere you want to. So why? Why go to Jeff? He, he's, he's the Berkey guy, guys. What, who, who else would you go to? Seriously, I mean, if you go to a gun show today, you're probably going to see a preparedness movie that are going to have Berkeys in there. But who's going to take care of you right every time? Who's going to fix anything that goes wrong? Who's going to give you the best price? Who's going to give you the best service? Jeff, three years of support of this show, zero complaints, because that's how he takes care of people. So when you're ready to step up and take charge of your water filtration and make sure you have water that's the best quality every day and you have an emergency plan when when, when it's not the case uh, and you want to be, be covered all your bases, 
Get in touch with Jeff, and he will help you pick out the right system for your needs. One of the most cost-effective systems I've ever seen, honestly, the Berkey system. People go, well, it's a few hundred dollars. you know. Well, yeah, once. Yeah, once. And then you're looking at 5,000 gallons or so before you're replacing the filter elements. Uh, you end up looking at water that costs you about you know two cents a gallon or something like that to take care of. So check him out today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, at directive21.com. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com. You know, I think silver and gold belongs in everybody's portfolio. After today's show, you'll probably be like, yeah, I need some of that too. Um, and it's a good idea to really diversify. If you want to diversify and get some really cool stuff that's hard to find anywhere else, check out silverandgoldshop.com. And if you have, over the summer, times where you're going to be seeing nieces and nephews and grandkids and stuff, and usually you bring them something, hey, why not bring them an ounce of silver? Put it in their little hand, explain how the value of silver and gold will grow over time versus the value of a money eroding, and tell them it's just like them. As they get older, they get wiser, they grow up, they have their own families, they get better education, etc. As they do that, they're going to become more valuable. They're going to they're gonna grow in their value to society, just like this will, and they can grow together. Just a thought, silverandgoldshop.com. Remember, the best way to find the Berkey guy and silverandgoldshop.com is to go to our site first, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on the links in the uh, right-hand margin. Their banners are there. That way you know you're dealing with somebody that actually has my personal endorsement and not some brand pirate, because they are out there, folks. Uh, I want to thank everybody who helped share uh, if I wanted to save America video, I'd like to say if you haven't shared it yet or you haven't shared it with everybody yet, please keep working on it. Uh, we haven't quite crossed 10,000 views. Uh, I'd like to see it you know, over the month of June get up into 30,000 views or more. I think we have a, a tremendous opportunity here to really make a difference for people by showing them a better way. I'm going to show you today how a lot of the stuff we talk about with one story actually works and how it can work for people you might not even think about it working for, for a problem you might think is too big to fix. But hold on for that. But do help share the video. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to over 32 different uh, vendors. And you'll be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, we have the housekeeping racked up. First question is kind of a homesteading question. Comes into us from John. And John says, Jack, I have a small flock of chickens. My neighbor is going to get chickens, and we don't have a fence between our yards. Should I worry about the chickens fighting? The only reason that I ask is when I've introduced new chickens to the flock in the past, it was brutal for the first few weeks. Uh, it can be. Um, if they both have their own house, their own chicken house, and they're kind of in their own flocks, they will tend to kind of stay to their own little territories. And it depends on how much space you have. If you have a lot of space, and if both flocks have a rooster, they'll actually kind of keep their birds in their own AO. If uh, it's just hens kind of beating up on each other, here's the way to look at it. When you've introduced birds to your flock, they beat up on each other. Eventually they get over it and they go on. So the same thing would happen with your neighbor's birds. You just need to prepare them and say, hey, look, this is what I've seen happen. But it really has a lot to do with how much space there is. Um, they will likely become quite territorial, and they may kind of solve their problems that way. But here's the reality. You're never going to know until you try. I just think it makes a lot of sense to tell your neighbor, look, there could be some conflict. We're going to have to work it out together. The, you, you know we don't have a fence. I know we don't have a fence. We both know chickens are chickens. They're going to do what chickens do. And let's, uh, let's just agree that when, we, when you do this, we'll just try to get this sorted out as best we can. And uh, I think that it's also important to make sure that both of you are providing all the chickens, all the resources that they need in their area of operations. Because if you don't, 
then they're definitely going to venture into neighboring territory because they're going to need something that's not there. So that's not just food and water and shelter. You know, they need things like dust and grit, so they have a dust bath, and they have grit for the craw and stuff like that. So make sure that all their needs are provided for, and just accept the fact that you're probably going to have to deal with a little bit of uh, maybe some chicken, chicken gang uh, territorial issues at first until peace can be made. Uh, if anybody has dealt with this exact situation, because I have not, I've never had a deal with somebody else's chickens messing around with chickens that we've owned. So if you've ever had to deal with that, come on over to the blog today, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Pick up on uh, episode 914 for today, and even if this is in the future, it's okay. Go down to the comments section and tell us your experience with it, and if there's anything you know what to do to moderate it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of shooting blanks on this one because it's not something I've ever had to actually deal with. So that's just been my experience, you know, that if, if they'll get over an introduction... And, and, and they tend to do that, then they'll also get over kind of that tribal-like arrangement that you've got going on there. All right, next one um, comes from Chad. Chad says, I was wondering if you thought this would be a good time to take money out of the bank. Between my girlfriend and I, we have over $50,000 in savings and money market accounts and some other stocks. This doesn't include the CDs that we have staggered over three years, taking your advice on that, one of which will mature next month. We've worked hard for this money and do not want to lose it in the event of a bank run. What would your advice be on this matter? P.S. Both cars are paid for and we do have a mortgage on our home as well as some student loans. Thanks. Chad. Um, okay, here's what I'm going to say to you. If you're going to take money out of a simple bank account or a certificate of deposit, a CD is going to cost you to do it. What are you going to do with it? If you know what you're going to do with it, go do it. Right. So if you told me, look, we want to take out some of this money and pay off our student loans or pay down our student loans, I'd say, be careful. Don't take too much. Make sure there's enough money to take care of yourselves for about three months, even if you both lost your incomes. And if you want to use the balance after that to pay down debt, okay. If you're just taking it out because you're scared that something's going to happen in the bank, listen, just pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on, and if you feel like you need to, you can always go do it. All right, um, this bank run thing—it's guys, really the, the the duration that something like that will play out is not like the fan fiction novels. It's not going to be an overnight event. It's not going to be one day everything is hunky dory and the next day everything is gone. Um, but I mean, the the fundamental reality is this. <laughs> If you take cash out of the bank and the economy collapses the way that people are worried about it with their money in the bank, the cash will likely not be worth very much anyway uh, very, very quickly. So I don't know, man. To me, I'll tell you what. I'm not pulling my cash out of the bank. Now, do I? if you had written me and said, look, we have about 50 grand in savings, I'm thinking maybe we should put $10,000 in cash and put it into uh, secure storage, a uh, safe deposit box, a firebox, well-secured somewhere underneath the foundation of our home or something like that, and we should have some portion of this immediately accessible, that I would be okay with. Just just liquidating it to liquidate it because you've been watching the news too much and you're scared. And I, I, I can't tell you that some of the things you're going to hear today are going to make you feel better about that. But just doing it because you're scared doesn't usually make sense. Now, the, 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 the other side of that, though, is you... <laughs> 
it doesn't really hurt anything for you to do it. You know, I mean, cashing the CDs in early, that doesn't make sense. If this one that's coming up for renewal, if you decide, okay, we, we want to take that CD and take it as cash, and we want to put it somewhere as cash outside of the banking system, or we want to buy silver or gold with it, or we want to do anything at all with it, okay, fine. But don't take everything out. And I, I just don't think it makes sense to liquidate everything at once anyway. It's, it can be, at times, a trigger to creditors or to the government that something's wrong. So, I mean, I'm not saying not to do it because of it. I'm just saying that is, like, why why cause a, a, a potential, you know, blip on the radar for nothing? Because I don't think the banks are going to collapse tomorrow morning. In fact, I'll, I'm willing to bet anybody on that that I'll bet you $1,000 that tomorrow all the banks will still be open there won't be a bank run. I'll bet you $1,000 by the end of June there won't be a bank run. Anybody wants that action? Come on, let's 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 lay it out and we'll we'll put we'll pony up that money. And yes, I'll be able to cover the the bet even if the banks are closed. All right. So the, I I just want people that are in this mode to pull back a little bit. Now the stocks. Stocks you better watch your ass with right now. Um just be careful. There's a potential for some upside and some serious downside with the the Greek issue. The Greeks are I'm beginning to think these guys are going to say, you know what, screw the euro, we're going back to the drachma, and we're done. And all the money we owe you, screw you. Or what they'll say is all the money we owe you, we'll print up some drachmas, we'll pay you in drachmas, and we're done. Or we'll pay certain debts in drachmas, and other debts, screw off, we're not paying you. I, and that will likely initially cause a market panic, but put strength in the dollar at the same time. It, it, it could be a really crazy time, and if it happens right around election time, God knows what it'll what it'll cause in the election campaigning and uh, posturing, etc. But I would not go take all my money out of the bank. Take some out if you feel that you need to do that. It's always your choice, and it doesn't really hurt anything. Because here's the other side of this: in, in your basic like money market and whatever accounts right now, you're, you're getting like less than one percent interest anyway. So screw it. If you want to take it out, take it out. Just put it in a very safe place, please. All right, next one. Um, I told you that some of the stuff we talk about can actually help people. And, uh, and help people in a situation that we normally don't think about and solve problems that are really big, uh, bigger than most people think we can solve. So one of the biggest problems we have for seniors today is, one, for them to keep food on the table because they're you know trying to live on Social Security, and many of them did not plan for anything. Two, they're afraid their Social Security is going to go away. Three, their health care costs, even with Medicaid, uh, 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 Medicare, I'm sorry, and they're, they're, you know, they're Part B and they have to pay for that and the donut hole and all this other crap is expensive. So it's expensive for them and it's expensive for society. It's expensive for me to, to, to buy a kidney for your 88 year old grandmother. I don't think she shouldn't have one if she needs one, but it's expensive, right? So, um, and it's not that we can't take care of people with critical needs. It's that, there's a huge burden, and, and our elderly are often on more medication than I feel that they should be. I, I, quite honestly, I can't get my pills. Well, maybe the reason you have eight pills all comes back to one or two pills you're taking for something you don't really need, and 
so if we could get them more active and a way to feed themselves and all, maybe we would end up in a situation where we would have less of a burden, both for the elderly trying to take care of themselves and what they have, and for society to be paying for them medically. Well, we can't solve that with a garden. I mean, come on, Jack. Jesus, you can't do that. It's ridiculous. A garden? For all, well, let's read this. Uh, sometimes it seems that uh, the English are ahead of us in things, especially the ecological things. Um, London, this is an article from May 27th, so it's a little bit old, not real old. A project in Britain that paired seniors and gardening enthusiasts increased the quality of life of both and saved health care funds, officials said. Sarah Jackson, a horticulturist, found volunteers who had no access to land to plant a garden with older people who wanted to maintain their gardens but could no longer work on them anymore. Three years later, Jackson said not only did the elderly in the program improve their mobility, but with their increased contact with younger gardeners, they were less isolated and showed fewer signs of depression, the Daily Telegraph reported. An official audit of the project involving 46 older people in a single borough in South London concluded that it could have saved taxpayers as much as $780,000 a year in that area. Single borough in London, 46 people, 780 grand. Uh, let's say they're way overly up optimistic and they could save a hundred grand. What if we did it throughout the entire country? That just might add up to real money, right? Okay, back to the article. Paul Barstow, the care minister, praised the project and said similar projects could be set up across the country involving other areas besides gardening as part of the overhaul of the social care system. Jane Harris, Stephanie Sexton, health and social care consultants used research on the link between mobility levels, falls, hip fractures, anxiety, depression, and estimated the program could reduce the number of physician visits. For seniors who said the project prevented existing conditions getting worse, the potential saving was almost $17,000 per person, the Telegraph said. So, from this, what I'm getting is the old people have the land, and they live in their little house, and they want to have a garden, but they really can't do all the gardening work only anymore. They can kind of tinker around in it and kind of keep it going and you know, you know, see to it throughout the week, but they can't do the hard annual work, the heavy work. So volunteers come in, they get to use the older people's land, the older people get to... Uh, to, to, to kind of maintain it. They split the stuff that comes out of it, and they get to interact with each other. And son of a gun, when older people get up and do stuff, and they talk to younger people, and we bring the multi-generational quotient back in, and they feel like they have a purpose in life, and they feel like they have something to contribute in life, their mental health goes up. And when somebody's mental health goes up, wow, their physical health goes up. There's actually a mind-body link between health uh, from the physical standpoint and health from an emotional, mental, and spiritual standpoint. Can you believe that? Is that possibly? Yeah, that's we've known that for a long time. So uh, can a garden fix Medicaid? Probably not. Can it help alleviate the problem? Likely so. This is something that people who are looking to do something meaningful in this country should look at doing. And I'll tell you why. You don't need anybody's permission to do this. You don't need anybody's permit to do this. This doesn't have to this I wouldn't make this a business. This would be an all volunteer thing. But for the person out there, especially for the person out there who's maybe retired and they have enough to to, to make a living. They they're, they're okay. And there's a lot of people out there that are retired they have their Social Security, they have their pension, they have their 401s, whatever, they have it. They're young yet. They really don't want a job, but we could have hundreds of little programs like this. 
You want to save America? This is one way to do it. There's plenty of people out there that that's this is this is what these older people need. And it reminds me of when I was a kid and I would be sent to distribute the stuff from our garden to all the other older people in the neighborhood that didn't have gardens anymore because they were just too old. They couldn't do it anymore. And there was about, I'd say, a good eight families that every year toward the end of the season, our garden would go into that end-of-year boom where, you know, my grandmother was making jars and jars of pickles, jars and jars of chow chow, jars and jars of canned beans. And, you know, we're, we're chopping the peppers and freezing peppers and canning peppers and making barbecue sauce and canning tomatoes. And it was like, you know, it's, it's, she was getting old herself, and she could only put so much of this crap away. So she would just take these big, you know, grocery sacks, the big old brown ones like they used to have, you know, the tree hater ones, which are so terrible because they break down into compost versus the ones that are plastic and fly in a tree forever, you know, those old ones. And she would just write everybody, every family's name on I was supposed to take them to. And I could maybe carry two sacks at a time, and I would take them, and I would do that. For the last couple of weeks, I'd probably, you know, do that three or four times. And I remember that every time I showed up, The, the people that I showed up were so happy, and they were happy that a young person was doing it. Right? That, that made a big deal. So one way you might even make this more powerful is to encourage volunteers to bring their children and truly get a multi-generational thing. And some people will say, well, what about these older people's kids? Why aren't they? They're living life, man. You know, they sh Should they? Yeah. But you know, maybe they're 25 states away. Who knows? But this is a place where people can make a difference, and you can just go make a difference now. Uh, but I wouldn't use it as any place to start a front yard garden work. The older folks don't need that. Keep them in the backyard unless it's already acceptable in the neighborhood. But I think this is a great way uh, to help people, a great volunteer initiative, and something that, again, somebody out there right now listening to me is going, I want to do something, and I've got my life pretty well squared away. Here you go. This is just one example of what could be done by people if they want to get something done. Um, I'm not going to do this one too deep because I might do a full, um, a full episode on this. In one of your previous podcasts, this is from Tom. Tom says, in one of your previous podcasts, I remember you saying that you once have spent three months on the Appalachian Trail. I hike the trail often, though I've never spent anything like that amount of time on any of my trips. I was hoping you could mention any lessons you learned on your hike, any tips you might have for less experienced backpackers. Though this may seem off topic for your show, I live in a trail town and often thought that I could use the trail to get out of the area during an emergency uh, that made vehicle travel impractical. Um, I'll tell you what, I, um, I, I, I don't have a lot of survival lessons from my time on the trail because I was very dependent on outside assistance. Um, I mean, you got to realize when I did this, I was 20 years old, just out of the Army, 21 years old, just out of the Army. And I had this place in my life where I'm like, I don't know what I want to do next. I just don't know what I want to do. And I, you know, I'd come out of the military and that was all a great experience at all, but I knew that, you know, when time came, whether you're going to re-enlist or not, there was no question I wasn't going to re-enlist. My family lived in this small town of Pennsylvania where there were really no opportunities. I had a friend down in Texas who said, why don't you come down here, hang out for a while, so you can find a job, the economy's doing pretty good down here, you can stay at my apartment. Eventually I did that. But before I did that, I just wanted kind of this unplugged decoupling. I'd gone from a point where everything in my life was controlled to where I had complete freedom of choice. When you leave a military, it's almost like getting out of like 
in some instances, like minimum security prison. It's not really. I mean, I don't want to put it like it's that tough to be in the military or anything, but in some ways it feels that way, like minimum security prison with work release. Because if you don't show up for your job, right, uh, in any job that you would ever have, you get fired. If you don't show up for your job in the military, you can go to jail. I mean, so you see what I'm saying. So you go from this, you know, your boss can decide that tonight you're cleaning your room. That, I mean, that's that's what the military really is. You know what? I didn't like your uniform today. Looks like you used a little bit better uh, attention to detail. So tonight, I'm going to come by at 9.30, right, at night, and I'm going to check your room, and I'm going to check every square inch of it. You better be there, and it better be squared away. And it could show up and, and go, yep, you're 95% there, but 5% still needs tied up. I'll be back tomorrow. And, and that kind of stuff doesn't go on a lot, but the fact that it can... It's a, it's, a, it's a weird dynamic. So my big thing on the trail was to, to, to put myself into a mental state that, okay, now I'm ready to go live the rest of my life under my direction, under my control. And that's what it was really all about. So um, I carried a lot of gear, of course, and I really took my time. And it's not like I covered a tremendous distance on a daily basis. But there's all these points along the trail, these little towns and stuff like that, where you can have stuff basically sent to a post office and, and things like that. You can walk down and, and get your stuff. And so it's not like I went out and lived off the land for three months. I had a lot of support. I had money with me. I had money coming in, um, and that was helpful as well. And I took about, out of that three months, there were twice where I took like a week, and I went and found a really cool hotel. One was... Uh, One was awesome, had a lake in the back for fishing and all. And so two weeks out of that three months, I was living large, so to speak, hanging out in really nice, uh, you know, small family-owned hotels, resort-style places. And when I came back from that, it was, um, it was, it was, it was like, okay, now I can go forward with my life. So that's what it was for me. It wasn't a big survival lesson or anything, but maybe I'll do a whole show one day, Lessons from the AT or something like that. AT for the Uninitiated is the Appalachian Trail. Um, here's an interesting uh, question I have for people. This comes from Robert. Uh, we hear a lot about children that come out, children, I should say young adults that come out of college, and they owe $20,000, dollars $80,000 in debt. They have a degree, they got good grades, and they can't get a job making more than, let's say, a waiter. And in fact, it's, it'd be one thing. It would be one thing if they could only make the money a waiter could make. But they were getting a job in their field of study that would lead to advancement and development and experience. But many times, the kid with a degree in marketing uh, or the degree in political science or the degree in whatever, law enforcement, whatever it is, is ending up, or criminal justice, or what, whatever it is, is ending up with a job as a waiter. So they can barely pay their debts. They have to take a job somewhere because reality is set in. And, but they're not, they're also not developing their career path at all. And they actually become, this is what I think a lot of people don't realize, that, that candidate becomes more and more, I should say, less and less marketable as they wane off of their degree. Their highest degree of marketability for an entry-level position in their field is probably in the first, uh, I'd say, three to six months. Because any employer looking at you, what have you been doing since you graduated with your degree in marketing from SMU? That's a great school. What have you been doing? Well, sir, I haven't been able to find a job in my field, so I've been working as a waiter for two years. I, 
I appreciate you as the guy interviewing you that you, you got off your ass and did something. But if I've got a candidate that's only three months out and you guys are pretty equal, I might side with... Now, I personally would probably side with the guy that's got two years of real work experience. I know he's going to appreciate the opportunity, but a lot of people don't think that way. We, we talk about that a lot. What about... The kid that's told, everybody should go to college, Johnny. And, you, you know, he's, he's a CB student. And he's really not that. But he gets he gets good enough. Um, he has good enough scores on his SATs uh, or what have you. And he, he just can get in. And he gets into school. And he goes there because he's told to. And he borrows money because he doesn't have any money to, to, to really go. But, like, everybody told him, like, you'll make an average of $50,000 more a year if you have to, whatever stupid marketing bullshit. So he signs off on these loans. He gets these loans, gets a few Pell Grants and things that he doesn't have to pay back. But now he's sitting with, like, like a year and a half in. He's sitting on, like, $20,000 worth of debt. And he realizes at this point, I, I, I can't do this. I'm not right for college. College is not right for me, whatever. Here's, here's the story that's out. It's on education sector. Uh, and uh, it says, degreeless in debt, what happens to borrowers who drop out? The stories of college graduates burdened with mountains of debt and poor job prospects have been well documented in the recession year. Uh, but while these students do face real problems in today's tough economy, their degree will still likely prove to be a wise investment even as the recession draws to a close. Lies for many of them and, and true for many others. Let's, let's be fair about that. But they got to get their upward propaganda in there, right? This isn't the case for another group of borrowers who may have bigger financial problems, even if the economy rebounds. What is happening to borrowers, borrowers who did not graduate but still have loans to repay? Degreeless in debt. What happens to borrowers who drop out? Education sector research analyst Mary Nguyen takes a look at often overlooked groups, students who took out large loans but failed to complete their college degree. Their prospects were bleak. Many of those who drop out are saddled with high loan payments, even as they are more likely to be unemployed and earn less than their degree holding peers, Nguyen notes. When they default, as many do, they experience devastating financial consequences. Nguyen found several disturbing trends. Students' borrowing has increased to the point the majority of freshmen at all institutions now borrow to pay for their education. Borrowing has grown the most at at for-profit institutions. This is especially significant because for-profit uh, for institutions enroll just 9% of all college students. While borrowing is on the rise, dropout rates are also increasing. For-profit four-year institutions have the highest dropout rate. In 2009, 54% of students in these institutions dropped out. An increase of 20 percentage points from 2001, the rate was 34%. Borrowers who drop out face higher unemployment rates, lower median incomes, and higher loan default rates than those who graduated. In the degreeless in debt, uh, in degreeless in debt and wind draws on data from the U.S. Department of Education's beginning post-secondary students uh, longitudinal survey and builds on an earlier study by researchers at Lawrence Gildix and or researchers Lawrence Gildix and Laura Pena. She looks behind the dropout numbers, investigating why students drop out. She also looks at their long-term economic prospects. Now, here's what I know some people are thinking right now. Well, screw them. They dropped out. They shouldn't have dropped out. Okay, so you're 20 grand in debt. You've been in school for, what, three semesters, a year and a half? You, you suck. Your grades are sucking. You're failing. You hate what you're doing. You don't like it anymore. You know it was a bad move. You know it was a mistake. You know you were talked into it. But just keep doing it? Really? It might be the most intelligent thing some of these kids have ever done is to say, you know what, this isn't for me, and walking away. Now, the people that are like one course away from a degree, you gotta wonder, like, what's wrong? Like, 
finish your I don't care if you have to take that course three times. It's only one freaking course. Do it at night. Do it whatever. Get the dadgone degree. You know, at least com complete a two-year associate's degree if you're if you're close. But a lot of these kids, you know, they're realizing, hey, this was a mistake. Now, here's something that we can all learn from. There's a lot of times things are mistakes. And we go, but we've got so much invested now. We can look at the military and see that. We can look at politics and see that. The time to stop actively doing something that's a mistake is as soon as you realize it's a mistake. Because if it's if it's the wrong choice, all doing it for longer does is make the problem worse. Please think about that before you condemn these kids who really are, were only there because most of them were shoved into it by overzealous parents, by overzealous guidance counselors, overzealous teachers, and a marketing program that is better than anything used to get a president elected. There is no slicker, better, more lie-filled freaking, I said lie-filled in case you missed it, lie-filled marketing program than everybody should go to college. It's the biggest ball of bullshit and lies ever sold to the American people. Because there are people that just aren't right for it. Now, this, I'm not on my I hate college soapbox here. I'm, I'm on my soapbox that says not everybody's right for this path. And we have done immense harm to these students by shoving them in there. Immense harm. No, the ones that completed their degree in communications or marketing and these, these things were a lot of these degrees that kids come out with like that, right? If you want to be in marketing and you just are on fire with the concept of marketing and you go get a marketing degree and you take any scab level position you can get to, to get a start once you get out and you immediately start working on a master's and you become a good analyst and a good developer, you can make a ton of money in marketing. It's a great career path. But if you took marketing because somebody told you that it's easy to get A's in the marketing courses, come on. Those students, it's not going to pay off for them. I had a web developer work for me for years as an employee. Still works for the company I left behind when I left. Great guy. Wonderful web developer. Taught himself PHP in his house with a book. Great designer. Can build a website and he'll do anything you want it to do. Makes a good living doing it now. Degree in marketing from SMU. Degree. And you know what? When I hired him, I didn't even care. I didn't hire him to market. I, I hired him to code and design and develop and to project manage. Did he get anything out of college that helped him with that? Likely, but the guy couldn't market water to a person starving of thirst in the middle of a desert. Couldn't do it. Couldn't, couldn't sell it for a quarter. Right? But he could put together a kick-ass design so somebody else could. Now, what does that mean? That means that this guy spent a lot of money to go to a really good school to get a degree in something that doesn't even matter in his life. Probably wasn't right for him. Probably wasn't. I'm just saying. I, and I can tell you the job he has now, I hired him into, and I didn't even, he, I remember it was like he worked for me for a year. He goes, yeah, I got a degree. I'm like, you do? He goes, it's on my resume. I said, you know what, when I hired you, dude, I didn't even notice. Didn't even care. All I wanted to know was what was your skills with PHP, MySQL, Development, design, what was your, all I want to know is what, what have you done and what could he do for me? How was it? And there's a fundamental reality there. So that's another group of people we're not even thinking about. Those who should have never went that failed to complete it because they were never going to. And some of these kids, this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm trying to say to you. I'm trying to get this across to, because I know there's a parent out there. Well, my kids are going. Well, you don't know that your kids belong there. Be flexible. 
Be flexible. And there's nothing wrong with a first year at a community college. And, and most of them fully transfer over to all the different state institutions, etc. There's nothing wrong with it. It'll cost very little money. Your kid can live at home for another year. And you can get a feel for what higher education is like and if it's going to work. It's so much less costly. Trust me, I know the alternative. Let's take another one. Well, on the financial front, one thing I've been saying for a long time now is that um, people are becoming less confident in the dollar. People are actually starting to see the dollar as somebody gets in their way. And when I say people, I mean everybody but us. Right, and I've explained how when a company, a country buys something from another country with international trade, generally the what has to happen is the you know the the one country converts their their money to dollars, pays the other country in dollars, who then converts the dollars back to their own currency, and then ships the goods over to the the, the first country. It's the basic way that international trade works because the dollar is the world standard, and who benefits by that? We do. We do. Just like if it was, if it had to be, the transaction had to be done in oranges, California and Florida uh, would do better economically, at least from that aspect of things, than let's say the rest of the country would. Got it? Pretty simple. And what I've said is that more and more countries will say, screw the dollar, and they'll do the trade without the dollar. I think a lot of people aren't even aware that it's kind of like you have to. Like, like these countries are actually saying, I know you said we have to, but make me. So I'm going to go do it myself anyway. Well, the latest one to do that, and it's not quite that yet from what I'm reading here, but it's Japan and China. Um, let me clue you in on something, folks. Second largest economy and third largest economy in the world. That's Japan and China. They're the two largest economies other than the United States in the world. Have just made a decision that they will trade... Their currencies directly between each other, uh, the yen and the yuan, right? And, and they will just leave the dollar out. Let me read it to you. This is on RT, uh, Russia Times. China and Japan have skipped the U.S. dollar starting direct currency trading in a, in a bid to reduce transaction costs on settlement risk and strengthen bilateral trade. Market players can now swap Japanese yen for Chinese yuan without having to use the U.S. dollar as an intermediary currency. China is Japan's largest trading partner, but about 60% of their mutual trade is denominated in U.S. dollars. The move is a crucial step for the yuan in the international foreign exchange market. It makes the yen the first foreign currency that can directly exchange with the yuan after it skipped the U.S. dollar as an intermediate. That policy has long incited trade tensions with the United States. For Tokyo, the possible future correction of China's undervalued yuan may lead to weakening of the value of its yen, increasing profits for Japanese exporters such as Toyota. Direct trade between the world's second and largest, uh, second and third largest economies will be on an interbank foreign exchange markets in Tokyo and Shanghai and aimed at lowering the risk of the dollar's fall in the long run. Beijing is seeking to boost the yuan's use internationally in line with the growing economic influence and in a bid to outrival the mighty dollar. Yan-yen direct trading is just a small step towards making the yuan a reserve currency. But what's foremost is whether China can carry out on other reforms. Zhang Zhui, chief China economist and uh, Norma Securities, told the uh, AFP. All right, Associated Free Press. So basically, this is what just happened. 
The two biggest economies in the world other than us just said, we'll use our money between each other the way that we think we should be able to do anyway, and no one can do diddly crap about it, and the reality is, no one can do diddly crap about it. And make no mistake of what China is trying to do here. China has purposely undervalued its currency for a very long time. And, you know, people would point out to you, Jim Rogers would just point out, you know, China is printing money just as fast as the U.S. Yes, but what are they doing with it? They're buying stuff. They're buying coal mines and gold mines and agricultural operations in Africa to create a developing world that they can, can kind of have their own little Chinese empire over financially. They've learned the capitalist game. They've told their citizens, take your money that we print within this whole system, and not only is it now legal for you to buy silver, go do it. So they've encouraged precious metal ownership in their, uh, their own people. They are playing chess, and they are looking many, many moves economically ahead of what we're looking at right now. We're pissed off about today. They're planning for tomorrow. I'm not saying they're great guys. I'm not saying we should do exactly what they're doing. But thinking about tomorrow versus the immediate gratification today is something we've lost in America. And it's going to surface, and it's going to hurt us, And it won't be likely that many of you won't live to see China become the largest economy in the world, larger than the U.S. Most people listening to me right now, you will live to see that day, and it won't be that far away. It's five years to ten years maximum. I mean, every forecast says it's going to happen. Does that mean the United States dries up and blows away in the wind? No. But it does make a really big case for China to stand up to the rest of the world and say, why is the dollar the reserve currency when we're the largest economy in the world? Why is the dollar with a pop, you know, with a, a home population of 300 million setting the standard for the rest of the world when China has about 2 billion people? We have a bigger economy, we have more people, we're more representative, representative. Our system works, and if we continue the decline here that we've had, they'll have a pretty strong case, especially if they say, you know what, this this vesting everything in one nation is not a good idea anymore, so why don't you guys take a look at us alongside India, who's now trading directly with Iraq, right, or Iran, right? So India is now using their money directly with Iran to buy oil to get around the sanctions, right? And these Brazilian guys and, and these Russian guys. Why, why, don't, why don't we look at maybe a basket international currency so that there's more stability? Um, take away your personal allegiance to your own nation for a minute. Put yourself in the shoes of any person in any country anywhere else in the world and tell me that at least economically and logistically it doesn't make more sense. All right, so what, what happens if the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency? Again, we don't blow away like a tumbleweed. What actually happens, though, is that this amazing strategic economic advantage we've been able to have over every other country on the planet is gone, and we ain't doing so good with it. Just saying, something to really think about. So I'll put a link in this story and, of course, all the other stories uh, in today's show notes. Now, this is also coming up here. This is going to be from RT as well. Um, this is a guy that I agree with on a lot of things. I don't necessarily agree with all of his conclusions. I've been asked him about, I've been asked about him for a very long time, and I've even been asked to get him on the show. And I don't know if we rate high enough to get him to uh, pay attention to us and come on our show. But his name is Dmitry Orlov. 
And he is the guy that's proposed the concept that eventually when there's an economic collapse in America, it won't just be a collapse a la Argentina, a la Greece. It'll be a collapse a la Soviet Union. It'll be a lot like what happened there. And that the country will actually split into sub-countries, you know, Alaska independence or something like that. So let's listen to what he has to say. This is long. It's going to be a long show today. But I'm going to come back and say why, even though I don't think he's necessarily right, how it could happen and how certain other things that he experienced in the Soviet Union when it collapsed are big lessons for us as preppers. Uh, so here you go. This is, again, from uh, Rush Times, and this is Dmitry Orlov on uh, the, the, the concept that eventually America will not just collapse, but will break up into a group of independent states. The U.S. economy is in dreadful limbo, and at this point, every American wants to know how bad can it get. The one answer being proposed is that the historical collapse of the Soviet Union is a clear model for America's future. And joining me now is Dmitry Orlov, the man who proposed this theory that is gaining extremely popular ground. Thank you for joining me, Dmitry. Thank you. Great to be with you. You argue that the U.S. will soon turn into the former USA. What do you mean? I've been looking at this for uh, a couple of decades now, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which I watched. And uh, ever since then, it had occurred to me that uh, the United States is basically uh, following the same trajectory as the Soviet Union followed. Um, the timing is, of course, different. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things that doomed the Soviet experiment are also in the process of dooming the American experiment. And this revolves around politics, around militarism, around energy, and many other factors as well. Your book is called Reinventing Collapse, the Soviet Example and American Prospects. If you had to pick out your strongest correlation between the collapse of the Soviet Union and what's taking place now in the U.S., what would your argument be? Inability to grow the economy resulting in um, debt that has to be taken on at a completely unsustainable rate. What do you believe that the Obama administration should be doing now that you argue they're getting wrong? They're trying to restart the economy. They have learned nothing from the run-up in commodities prices that uh, preceded this collapse. And so restarting the economy is the wrong move. They have to start building a different economy based on, not on continuous growth and exponential expansion, but sustainability. And in fact, they could do pretty well even if they didn't grow the economy, provided they uh, did a good job and, and provided for the, for the welfare of the people in the country. Gave them the basics, you know, gave them food and shelter and transportation and security. So what do you have then left? Just a country that's surviving? Yes, and in fact, that's pretty good, because if you compare that to the Soviet example, a lot of people died unnecessarily. A lot of lives were ruined and cut short. There was a flood of refugees. That is all completely avoidable here. So what you're arguing is that the collapse of America is unavoidable. What Americans can prepare for is how bad the consequences you say will get. 
That is basically what I'm saying. I think that you know you could compare what's going on in the United States to a tsunami or a hurricane or an asteroid impact. It's something that's been in the making for a long time. It is going to happen, and talking about averting it is just a, basically a waste of time. What we should be talking about is how we can prepare it and build a different, different society, perhaps different ways, different economy that's at a much lower level of resource expenditure, that provides the basics that people need to survive and have decent conditions. What is the most important thing that Americans can do right now to prepare for the worst if it is to come? I think the most basic people have to do, thing that people have to do in this country is meet their neighbors. Uh, everybody walks around talking on their cell phones, ignoring the people directly around them. There's very little face-to-face -face communication. There's very little sense of community. Uh, people have a very sort of boxed-in sense of what's mine and what's yours and, and refuse to share. People should try to get to know each other and try to, to work out arrangements where they, they share responsibilities and where they, they, they share whatever they have. You know, for instance, uh, people, a lot of people don't need to have their own car. They could share a car amongst friends. Uh, you know, I've done it with friends. That's a, a specific thing that people can start doing that, that will work for them. That actually speaks to your argument that the Soviet Union, the people living in the Soviet Union, were more capable of surviving a collapse than Americans are capable of surviving a collapse. Why do you think so? Well, that is actually a big part of my, my argument, which is in a collapse, a lot of positives becomes, become negatives and vice versa. So, for instance, the housing crisis in Russia meant that, you know, families were uh, living in cramped apartments, three generations all living together on top of each other. Well, after collapse, it means that they were on hand to help each other. So the grandparents could uh, take care of the children while... while uh, while the adults were, were out doing something, trying to survive. Um, and, you know, commu big communal apartments, of course, are, are not that great, but they're very cheap to heat. So if you have, a, you know, a fuel crisis, it's very helpful, much better than, you know, suburban housing. Um, many other examples like that. Uh, private cars are con convenient, but, and public transportation not so. But if you have a gasoline shortage and you have public transportation, that can be a lifesaver. Your predictions on the security of this country are quite frightening, and you base your theory on the instability you witnessed following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, I was in Russia during periods of time when people thought I was insane to even go there. Um, and, and during that time, uh, some friends of mine got killed. A lot of people got, got mugged and terrorized. And I, I just saw the environment. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would get on a train and, you know, some of the passengers were escorted on board with, by soldiers armed with Kalashnikovs because that was the security environment. You know, I, I heard of, uh, you know, various rent-a-cop schemes where you have to pay off a policeman to do this and that. Once there's a collapse, the only skills they have are these violent skills involving weapons, and, and, and uh, uh, that's how they make money. So unless somebody finds something useful for them to do, work in security, then they'll go into business for themselves, and so much the worse for everyone else. Uh, this country maintains over a thousand overseas military bases. Uh, once those budgets start dwindling because the tax base is shrinking and you know the deficits can't be financed, 
uh, those soldiers will have to be brought back and those bases will have to be shut down. So that means a lot of soldiers and no economy, no domestic economy to reintegrate them into. Uh, the prison population is uh, per capita largest in the world and uh, right now it's being whittled down. California is in the process of releasing uh, I think 50,000 of them. A lot of states will, will end up paroling prisoners, so there will be a flood of prisoners. Basically in the same situation uh, where they, there isn't a domestic economy for them, they will have to find some way to, to find what they need, uh, possibly through violence. Dimitri, what should people be doing with their money right now? Because the popular answer is buy gold. But what if people only have a little bit amount of savings? What should they be doing with their dollars? The easiest thing to do with a little savings is to um, start um, a tiny little business. Not necessarily a going concern, but get the tools together. So if you're good at carpentry, buy carpentry tools and supplies. If you're good at sewing, for instance, get a really good sewing machine and everything you need to do that. Because in the future, you will be able to survive by making money with these things when the money itself is gone and the money you have now is worthless. But in general, the way to invest money in, in a collapsing economy is to invest it in ways so that you lose it slowly over time as opposed to all at once. What will happen to the rest of the world if America collapses? Because this crisis is a global crisis. What will happen to the European countries? What will happen to Russia, China, India if America collapses? A lot of countries will go through a political upheaval. Um, for two reasons. One is the middle class in those countries is very dependent on, on, on America more than anybody else. They're, de they're dependent on international finance and commerce. Once that goes away, uh, they pretty much have nothing more to offer to their own people, so their own people will rebel. Um, so there will be a conflict between these middle class elites and all of the populations that they have been nominally in charge of all these years while the times were moderately good. Mm -hmm. So there, there will be a, a, lot of, a lot of rebellion throughout the world. You say that at this point you consider what you're doing a community service, what you're doing, lecturing, you have a blog that's very popular, you've authored a book, you've written many articles and it's a community service for Americans? Every time I've tried to, uh, to stop, uh, a flood of emails comes in begging me to continue. So I can't disappoint that many people. What are people saying? What do they want to know? A lot of people ask the same question over and over again, which is when. You know, I get, I get desperate emails. I, I, have a, I have a bride in the Ukraine. Will the United States hold together for the next six months because it'll take us that long to get a visa? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that was one of the most desperate pleas I got so far. But a lot of people want to know about timing, and I can't give them that information. Mm -hmm. uh, what I can do is point people towards a, a great deal of resources on how they can help themselves and, and restructure their lives and try to get out of debt, for instance, you know, maybe take up a little bit of farming so that they have some food coming in. From what I read, you proposed that if people are paying rent or a mortgage, you don't have to pay anymore. If you go to work, don't overwork yourself because that job is going to come to an end either by the person getting fired or quitting. Is that a little bit radical? You're saying don't pay your bills and don't try hard at work? A lot of my proposals are, are basically dares. I, I dare people to think through the consequences and, 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 and 
I'm hoping that that helps people get off the autopilot and actually live in ways that, that, that are more meaningful, mm -hmm. uh, that they, they become, be, begin to understand why they're, they're doing what they're doing. I don't expect, actually, you know, everybody to, to go into foreclosure by listening to my talk. Dimitri, in terms of preparing for a collapse, I understand you practice what you preach. You also invested in a boat so that um, you would eventually be able to get into the shipping business and undercut the cost of trucks. And this is sort of like a survival method that you have come up with. Actually, this is part of a business plan. Uh, a bunch of my associates and I are putting together a sail transport network. The idea is to ship organic produce from farms along the coast to population centers using sailboats and sell them at farmers markets that are right at the dockside. Mm -hmm. This is a completely carbon-free method of supplying food to population centers that's not dependent on anything except sunshine and soil and water and wind. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, it, it's, it's not a fun thing to listen to, especially from a guy from the Soviet Union talking about us that way. But here's something I realized whenever I listen to this guy. There's times he'll say things like, there's no way out, and I'll be like, hey, what do you know? You know? And I get kind of pissed, and then I think, Jack, you, you know that's true. You, you've, you've said it many times yourself, and you'll say it many times again in the future. So why does it bother you when this guy says it? Well, one, because I don't agree with all of his conclusions. I, I really don't. Um, I don't think it's inevitable that the, the, the United States will break up into, into sub-countries, so to speak. I don't think that's inevitable. The, the monetary collapse thing I do see is inevitable, but I, I don't know what it'll look like, and I don't know if it'll be as bad as he thinks, worse, or not quite as bad as he thinks, you know, or, or even more similar to what we dealt with during the Great Depression. I don't know. And one thing I do like about him is when he's asked, when is this all going to happen, he says he doesn't know. He doesn't come up with bullshit dates and then kick the can. So I think that overall, this man believes what he's saying, and he has a way of looking at this that is got a lot more clarity than we do, because he's been through it. He actually watched it happen. Now, odds are, though, if he had hung out with Fernando down in Argentina, he would have a different view of what the U.S. collapse would look like. If he was a Greek citizen in Greece right now, he would have a totally different view. So it's it's natural that a person that went through the breakup of a large world-dominating leader like the Soviet Union would think that another large country would do the same thing. Here's where he may be right, though. Let's, let's examine the possibility that he could be right. Number one, Argentina, uh, you know, Greece, these countries like this, there's not a lot of breaking up to be done. They're, they're, they're you know economically, they're, they're relatively small nations. Uh, geographically, uh, they're nowhere near the size of the United States. Argentina's a fairly big place, but not anywhere near like the Soviet Union, certainly, and not with the diversity of economic power that's in the United States. And here's what I mean by that. Florida has a tremendous amount of economic output from agriculture, citrus, uh, fishing, beaches, it's got a certain thing going on to it that's very different than what Texas does, who has even more resources, and very similar to California, who if they, let's frankly admit it, got rid of their debt through some kind of dissolving, would have a lot more resources. And there's a lot of resentment in a lot of states, not California not being one of them because they're on the receiving end versus the giving end, but states like Texas are like, you know what, we're tired of paying everybody else's freaking bills. 
Because they put a lot more in than comes back to them in federal money. They're, they're, they are an output state versus an input state. And then there's states that, that don't have a whole lot of economic power on their own, and they kind of need somebody to help them. I would say Arkansas would be an example. There's some, there's some advantages that Arkansas has, but they really couldn't stand alone. They kind of would need, in this modern society, a Texas to band together with, a Louisiana to band together with, with. And then we've got shipping, we've got oil production, we've got agricultural land in northern Louisiana, southern Arkansas. That starts, and if you pull Oklahoma into that, you've got more oil, and boy, that is a, right in the center of the country, lots of seaports, lots of airports. Strong military when you put the, 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 the four state guards together. It's, you know, right? So you can kind of naturally see these places where things might break apart. He, I've heard him at other times say he thinks Alaska would join with, with Russia, which I think is crazy. Alaska would, would probably say, we're Alaska, screw off, right? Uh, I, I, I just don't see them, them joining with Russia. I think he's totally wrong there. But you could see an Alaska saying, look, we don't have that many people. We got lots of oil. Um, we got uh, Alaska, the Alaska, uh, you know, uh, Reserve and National Guard and Air Force and, and the Army. We've got enough to defend ourselves with. Hey, if we're leaving, we're taking our, our, our missiles too. Ah, you know, come on, right? So you can see how this could happen. Now, what could cause it to happen is the belief of the people in each one of these regions that the other people are taken from them, and if they just had their own stuff. So in many instances, people feel that way, and it is true. In many instances, people feel that way, and it's not true. But it doesn't matter if it is or it isn't, just whether or not people will believe. And if the whole thing's falling apart in a mess, could it happen? Yes. What are, if I'm the odds maker on this, you know, what do I say the percentage of chance of this coming out kind of the way he's saying? I'd say once the whole thing starts, 10%, uh, it's... Pretty significant, though, for me to go to 10% on that. Some of the things, though, that I want to talk about that he said as we wrap up today. Number one, he said restarting the economy is a bad idea, that we need to create a new economy. I think that's some of his old communism stuck on his head. I really do, and uh, you know, even when people come from, that, uh, from from communist countries and say, "Well, I'm not a communist. I love to get away from the communism," they generally, because they grew up indoctrinated with it, they carry baggage, just like you and I carry baggage. Many of us have decided, you know what, blowing up other countries is not something to always support. That there's times when, but yet when somebody says, like, you know, we should be doing that, we're like, "Hey, you got to support the troops." Like, we, so we we know that there's that that that's not inseparable. We know that we can support the soldier and still say maybe we shouldn't be in this country, but but when but when somebody pulls at us, that that baggage holds us back. So I think some of his baggage is holding him back when he says things like restarting the economy is a bad idea. But I also think he's right. The restarting the economy that broke in the first place isn't going to fix anything. But it's about the monetary policy more than the economy itself, and this this concept of creating money out of thin air, which I've never really heard him address. Um, the crime aspects of things I think we really need to listen to and people needing police and military for hire as security. And what happens when all of these soldiers, and I don't just mean the combat troops, okay? Because uh, here's the reality. The majority of U.S. soldiers deployed overseas are not combat troops. The majority of U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines are not combat troops, period. They're just not. There's a huge logistical support element throughout all of the branches of service that exist to support the combat troops so they can do their job. 
But the, there's far more of the logistical people than there are the combat troops. So it's not about so much these gristled war veterans coming home. It's about all of these people coming home. And they all are at least familiar, especially in the Army and the Marine Corps, with basic combat tactics. If you go in the Army to be a computer clerk, you still learn how to throw grenades, shoot machine guns, tactical movement. You're a rifleman first, and the Marine Corps too. And you get training similar in the Navy and the Air Force, but the Army and the Marine Corps train their basic logistical people to a higher level, especially the Marine Corps. As an Army Airborne guy, it's hard for me to admit that, but when it comes to basic entry training, boot camp, the Marine Corps, with its non-combat forces, does a better job of turning them into true uh, Marines than the Army does of turning them into true soldiers. But they all get some. So you got all these people coming home. you got these prisons where they're starting to say, you know, we just can't keep everybody in here anymore. You know, and that's that's a common problem throughout history. Do you know that in the Civil War, a lot of times that like when one unit would capture another unit, north or south, they would give the prisoners a little piece of paper, a parole paper, and they would document who they were, and they'd say, you cannot fight. You have to wait until there's a prisoner exchange, and you're on your honor. But if you got caught again, you're dead. You're dead on sight and in a very graphic way, possibly. All right, because the system had to have integrity. But it was because neither side could, could deal with the prisoners. So that you would all get paroled and you just kind of go sit it out. Like you're on the side, like you're tagged out in a game of tag. And you would wait. And then eventually there would come a prisoner exchange where, like, you know, the union representative would come in and talk to the Confederate representative and say, okay, well, we, we've, got, we've got two of your colonels. And, and then the, the guy would say, okay, well, the colonel is worth, you know, a lieutenant and ten privates and five sergeants. So we'll give you that in exchange for these two colonels. And they would work out an agreement. And then that would exchange the paroled prisoners. And then the prisoners could rejoin their units after that was done. So it's not like stuff like this has never been done before, where they just go, we got to start letting more people go. Even in a time of war, this stuff was done. It beat shooting them, right? So there is this problem. What happens when you know a million plus more people join an economy that's already failed out of the military, and maybe a half a million to a million plus people join the economy out of a prison system, and that like people with high skill levels and high integrity are trying to get a job, and then these people that have no practical experience in the work world, are, it's just like what we see now, only worse. So that is something that can, you know. But what are the solutions? Some of the solutions are share responsibilities and meet your neighbors. That sounds very familiar. Um, they, he also says to buy stuff for a business. And I, I want to make sure that People out there understand a term that he used. When he said start a business, he said not necessarily a going concern. So what is a going concern? It's investor talk. And it's for a business that's running and taking in revenue and functioning. It may be profitable. It may not be profitable. But it's functioning. It's working. It's going. It has customers. It's doing whatever it's supposed to do. That's a going concern. So what he's saying is, Maybe you start a business today that's not necessarily a going concern. So you're not actually actively running the business. Maybe you're taking a little job here, a little job there, but you are developing all the materials and the knowledge that you need to implement that business after collapse. So he said, if you're really good as a carpenter, buy the tools you can for your trade now. So I see a lot of people on like survival blogs and boards and stuff like that saying, oh, buy hand tools, buy hand tools. Not if you don't know what the hell you're doing. Not if, not if you're not good as a carpenter. But if you are, then that's a great thing to buy because you'll actually be able to do something with it to earn money. 
Because people will be willing to pay you to come in and do it in kind of an underground economy at times, and maybe even an above-ground economy as things rebuild. So that, I think, is very good advice. Um, he also said farm and grow food. So growing your own food is something that a person who's lived through arguably the largest collapse of an economic nature in the history of the modern world that anybody's alive to have ever seen says growing your own food is a good idea. So that makes me feel vindicated. Because even if I don't agree with the conclusions that this man draws, I cannot argue with the experience on the ground during these situations. The last one has me thinking. We just did a show on sailing. You know, and what he said is, at first when I heard this at the end, I really wasn't paying attention, and I thought it was like some new anti-carbon thing, you know, and they're going to have this, you know, some kind of new biofuel or some crap, because I really wasn't paying attention. But what he was actually said at the end is that they're talking about him and some partners putting together a business, all based on sailboats, and the sailboats would go from ports where there's a lot of agricultural production take the agricultural products, sail to ports where there's not quite as many, and sell the products farmer market style right at the port. That's actually really freaking cool. And the, the beauty of that is the people running the boats really don't have a lot of dependence on anybody or anything because they're using wind for power. I don't care that there's no carbon. I care that there's no cost. Right? They ain't taxing the wind yet. Right, so that, and it's also very similar to how a lot of Asian economies work right now with seafood. If you go to Vietnam and you go down to a lot of these ports, there's thousands of people down there with baskets of seafood. You go through and pick what you want. It's fresh caught. It's actually a pretty amazing thing when you, you know when you see it how it works. And there's no reason it couldn't be done with produce. Now, my question is, what ports are there? that are easy to get to from ports that, that, that have the agricultural production that don't. I'm not sure, and I'd like to know more about what he's doing there. Anyway, I think this guy, while I don't agree with everything he has to say, is fascinating. And uh, if anybody out there has any contact uh, with this gentleman, if you'd like to let him know, he would be welcome on the show as a guest. I'd love to have him on. Again, I know he's been on a lot of like television exposure and stuff like that, so I don't know if, if he, we, he would consider us big enough exposure to be worth coming on, but I, I'd be happy to have him coming on. Uh, but I think it gives you a lot to think about if you want to see the actual interview. And I think it's worth, even though you've already heard it, maybe seeing it and seeing how genuine the guy really is. Again, I don't have to agree with somebody to believe that they believe what they're saying. And I respect that. And uh, it might be worth it. So there will be a link in today's show notes along with everything else. I think the big lesson to take away from this is all the crap we talk about from a sane, rational standpoint of this is what collapse looks like. When we say it really happened that way elsewhere, it did. When I say it's crime that you're going to have to worry about, you know, more than jackbooted thugs. When I say that it's a good idea to grow your own food, build community, have trade, build a business, have barter. All these things actually worked for other people when a very similar event occurred. So I think that's a good idea. I really like... Also, that when she asked him, like, if you can't afford gold and silver, what should you do? He said, turn to investing in a business. I think that that is something that can help you no matter what happens, if times get tough for you, even if they don't. 
And so, again, I'd love to have uh, Dimitri on the show. And if anybody, again, has had any correspondence with him or, or what have you, uh, just let them know and send them the link to the guest submission form, and we'll work them in uh, as quickly as possible. Because right now we're booking guests into July, but I would book him in in June uh, and move things accelerated to get him on uh, on the air is uh, at as early as convenience. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you